So we're, we're continuing our study on the, on the cross. Remember that we're talking about the cross in the life of the believer. That's us. We're not talking about uh, cross in, as far as just that Jesus died on to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. We're talking about how that same cross of Christ that He died on rose again, uh, rose again from the dead, how it is to work in the life of the believer. And so I want to talk to just a little bit tonight uh, you can turn with me, if you would, in Matthew, to Matthew chapter 5 and just hold your spot there. We're going to read it in just a moment. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll read it in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 29 in just a moment. But really, kind of where we left off last week was the fact that if that the Lord is gracious to not reveal all of our self to us at once. He doesn't just dump on We wake up in the morning He says, here's the million things, as a Christian, okay, here's the million things that are wrong with your life that I need to work on. He's kind of gracious to show us a thing, bring the focus to something in our lives, one or two things maybe, or one thing, and deal with us about that. And then <clears throat> we walk in victory in that area. And then there's something else he'll show us. Something else. Randy, you're selfish in this area. Your, your flesh is still strong in this area. And that is a constant working. He's the potter, we're the clay. He doesn't just finish the product, you know, when I'm 30 years, 40 years, 50 years old, or been a Christian for that long. He finishes it when we see him face to face. When we see him, we'll be like him. So just don't be discouraged that he's continuing to work in your life. Be thankful that he's continuing to work in your life. Because he's making us more like Jesus, he's going to use what's going on in our country to make us stronger and to make us more like Jesus. We don't like it. We don't want it. It's not what we're praying for. We're praying for a revival and a change. But God is going to use it if we'll let him to, to work in our lives. And there's a, a scripture before we read in Matthew. I'll just quote this from Matthew. I mean, from Ephesians 5, 8, where uh, where Paul says, you were sometimes darkness. That's before we got saved. You were sometimes darkness. Not just that we lived in a dark world. We were sometimes darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk, and then there's a colon right there, and it says walk as children of the light. Or walk, walk in the light. Walk like, be what you are. Be what God's called you to be. And, you know, that, that passage in that wonderful account where it talks about Elijah calling down fire from heaven. The nation of Israel had gone over to Baal. And, but they were the people of God. They were called to be the people of God. And Elijah is the one man standing there and he says, why do you halt between two opinions, right? This is one of the most profound uh, questions, I guess, asked in the, in the Bible. Why do you halt between two opinions? The people didn't answer a word. If God's God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. We're going to find out right now who's God. And he calls down the fire from heaven. And it's the same way in our day. If the Lord is your Lord, we know he's God. But if he's your Lord, then, and he's my Lord, then we need to live like it. And I can't walk in the flesh and live like I'm a child of God. I can be a child of God and commit sins and things like that. Uh, it's not God's will and he won't let me stay there. But if I'm a child of God, that everything in the Word of God and everything in the Holy Spirit's admonition to us is saying, come out and be separate. 
Come out and be separate. Be holy as He is holy. It's all He's saying. Come and walk in the light as He is in the light. You were sometimes darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We belong to Him. He's our Father. Right? We're of the Lord. We're born again. Born of the Spirit. That's a different nature. Live like that nature. Live like that nature. That's what the Lord's calling us to. If we're His, then we need to be what, what we are. If we're born again, be born again. Okay? Live born again. And let's look at this in Matthew 5. We know the passage, and actually we don't, seems like I don't hear a lot about this. I think maybe people don't know quite, maybe some people don't know what to make of it. But in, in Matthew 5, 29-30, for example, we'll read those two verses. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, a member of your body, okay, an organ, and that not, not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And I don't believe, okay, I don't believe that, the, that the, the Lord Jesus is instructing us to go maim ourselves because every one of us has sinned. I've sinned with my hands. I've sinned with my eyes. You understand? And, and I don't, and the, the disciples have sinned in those ways. The early church has sinned in those ways and they didn't practice this as a practice of actually mutilating their bodies. There's two things that I, that I get from this, and I, I personally feel okay with it. I'm not afraid of this passage. Two things. To, to, for one, I think it is more profitable if we were, if that were the case, and we had to cut my hand off to keep me from stealing, for example. And if that's what it took, then it would be, in the end, more profitable, Jesus says that, to enter into heaven, because when we get to heaven, and we're talking about it on Sunday mornings now, we're going to have a glorified body. That hand will be restored, okay? That's more profitable than to go to hell having two good hands, all right? So that little truth, uh, not little truth, that truth, I understand that it's, he's showing this, the severity of it, the seriousness of it. And he's also saying the drastic measures that we need to take. And I don't think a lot of times we, we take as drastic a measure against our own personal sin as we should. I think sometimes we kind of, he's a, he's a God of grace, you know, he knows we're just messed up human beings and we don't do things right. And so we live this haphazard, uh, unholy life. It's a lukewarm life, and he never called us to do that. So the passage like this and many others, but this passage to me is saying, take drastic measures to, to defeat personal sin in your own life. If, if that's what it takes. I know that I've given examples. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right here. But if you had trouble with X, Y, Z. As a Christian, this is a besetting sin. It's a sin that has the greatest advantage over you at this point of your life. You know it's a sin. God knows it's a sin. It seems like you're, you're making no progress here. Go to the Lord and fast and in prayer and find out what He would tell you to do. Maybe you already know. 
and you're not doing it. Well, that's too severe. If friendships are causing me to listen to dirty jokes and to watch things on TV and to have conversations that are not glorifying to God, I know it's not glorifying to God, but I'm too much of a wimp to do anything with my ungodly friends to, to make any changes. God would say, cut that off. I've experienced that myself. And it was like a new, a new day for me in my Christianity. And that's just an example. I'm only giving it for an example. Take as drastic of measures as is what is needed. Okay? Because there's nothing more wonderful than walking with unhindered fellowship with Christ. There's no, nothing more devastating to the life of the believer and harmful to our testimony than sin that's just going unchecked in our lives. Not going unforgiven, because if we confess it sincerely, He forgives us. But it's not just a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of growth. It's a matter of these things being out of my life once and for all. Okay, like we talked about a month ago, sticking that flagpole up and say, here's a victory in my life. You know what I mean? I'll have other ones that I need to fight and other enemies in the land, but that's a victory. And so that's that's what I gather from this this passage in Matthew personally that we just read from the Sermon on the Mount. And I like what the author says here when. When God says pluck out, don't try to ease your conscience with prayer. He's saying pluck it out. In other words, if he tells you to to cut those friends off, it's not a time to go, let me go pray about it. If he is saying, the Lord is saying to your life, pluck out, okay, cut off, praying about it's not going to do it. It's time for action. It's time to be obedient to what the Lord is telling us. When God says cut off, crying about it is not going to suffice. Feeling really bad about it, genuinely bad about it, crying about it is not going to suffice. He's saying cut it off, pluck it out, do away with it. It could be our eating habits. It could be what we watch on television. It could be music that we listen to. It could be friendships. It could be a lot of different things. But when he says, cut it off, that's what he means to do. Let me go pray about it. And we just stay in a a circle. We're like an airplane in a holding pattern. It never comes down. We're just, he's saying, cut it off. And I'm saying, let me pray about it. You know, cry about it. Feel bad about it. Sing some Christian songs. Play my favorite Christian worship CD. He's saying, deal with it. And a lot of times I think we don't. We, we can spiritualize it in so many ways. But, you know, when Israel went to the land, and again, I, I, I'm reading through the book of Joshua right now. I know the college group is studying the book of Joshua. But I've just re- read this past week about, started reading about Israel's failures, specific tribes that failed. You know, Joshua was getting old. It was late in his life. And he says, why are you so slack to, to obtain you know, your inheritance. Each tribe had a marked off specific geographic inheritance. They were given the promise of God that he would drive out the enemies. They were given the command of God 
to go drive them out and possess the land. I don't care if there's giants. I don't care if they have chariots of iron. This was their excuses. They're giants. This is even after Jericho fell and after all that. Um, years, they were still slack. And they just, it says that they ended up, and, and I was just reading one particularly about Manasseh. It was the, their failure to drive out the Canaanites from their land. And they said they have chariots of iron. They were telling Joshua this was their excuse. This is why we can't chase them out. Iron chariots. You know what I mean? They're just, they're too big, they're too strong, they're too powerful. Joshua goes, you are going to drive them out even though they're mighty people and even though they have chariots of iron. That's how we ended that chapter. You're going to drive them out. There's a assured victory that we have. Joshua trusted God like that. Caleb trusted God like that. And because Joshua trusted God like that, the walls of Jericho came down. He did what he was supposed to do. He couldn't take Jericho. God could, could do it if he would obey him. Caleb went up when he was 80 years old. You know the story. He was 80 years old. He went up and took a, a particular hill in the city where the remnants of the giants lived. Literal giants. They were still there. And Caleb was 80 years old. And he goes, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. Give me that land, Joshua. Moses promised it to me. And he's dead now and you're the man. I'm telling you, give me that land. Joshua goes, it's yours. Go take it. Joshua went and took it. And it's, it's a question of faith. And there are things in our lives, instead of in, in the failures of, of Israel and the failures of these tribes, after Joshua died, we see it in the book of Judges. All this intermingling, all this turning to worship idols, all this living way below, living oppressed by the Philistines when they were, the Jews were supposed to be the head and not the tail. And, but what happens is they, they, at Canaanites, who, it says, who, who would still dwell in the land. So what does that mean to us as believers? That means there's things in our lives that the blood of Jesus is sufficient for to cleanse us. The Holy Spirit of God in us is great enough to put those sins, sinful habits and practices out of our lives and we're letting the Canaanite dwell where? In the land. That's how I relate it. That's how I relate it. I'm a Christian. I'm not, I don't cease to be a Christian because there's some kind of sin that's still in my life. I'm not fully possessing the land like I should. We're not walking in the fullness of Christ. It doesn't bring God glory. And we settle in. Sometimes we settle in. So I want to talk about some of these specific things. And maybe some will hit home for you. I know they, they hit home for me when I was reading it. <clears throat> but we just kind of get used to it. And I pray one of the things that would come to us from this series on the cross. Don't just get used to it. Say, well, I've always been a worrier. I guess, and you're a Christian. You've been a Christian for 25 years. I guess I'll always just be a worrier. But the Bible says whatever is not a faith is sin. The Bible says be careful for nothing. He's not asking us to do that. He's telling us be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, right? And so we, we settle down and just say, this is just how I am. And it's not how God wants us to be. We're largely creatures of habit, right? We're selfish and fleshly and selfish in our very nature, our, our carnal nature. And then we've had a lot of practice at it. 
since birth, being selfish. We've had a lot of practice at it, serving ourselves and orchestrating things just to suit my pleasure, my wants, and my desires. And so I'll give some examples here. Maybe you've always been a complaining Christian, a murmurer. You're a Christian, but you murmur a lot. You feel sorry for your little sweet self. Okay? Feel sorry. And when you pat yourself on the back, and we feel sorry for ourselves. We know how to put the face on in front of others, but we know how to feel sorry for ourselves. It's just how I am. My mom was the same way. My dad was the same way. We're just that way by nature. But it's not Christ's nature. And we ought not settle for that. That's what I'm saying. It was, it was the excuses of the Israelites. Well, these Canaanites are just a little too strong. You know what? We'll, we can coexist with them. They're not that bad. I met some really nice Canaanites here. You know? And so we're going to just allow it. But we don't have to be a complaining, murmuring Christian who feels sorry for ourselves all the time. The Bible says, if the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, does he? Because if you're born again, he does. If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will also quicken our mortal bodies. He's going to quicken them and he can do away with that complaining and murmuring spirit and practice and tendencies and set me free from that. But I can promise you, we have to cooperate with the Lord. These things do not just happen automatically. God promised the, he- the Hebrews absolute, and I mean absolute victory over the enemies of Canaan. It doesn't matter how big they were, how many giants, how many chariots of iron, how many walled cities. Absolute victory. No strings attached. But they had to go in and possess the land. They had to trust God and they had to go fight. <clears throat> and we have to cooperate with the Lord. The Bible says we by the Spirit. I know we go to this verse all the time. Romans eight thirteen are to put to death the deeds of the body. Mortify the deeds of the body. By the Holy Spirit, I am told to do that. Okay? Another one. Are you uh, what you call thin-skinned? We're real sensitive and... and you know, we're Christians, but we're real sensitive. And the least thing just hurts our feelings and sets us off. And if somebody genuinely reproves us in the Lord and rebukes us because of something that we needed to be reproved of and rebuked of in our lives, we, we get so bent out of shape and get our feelings hurt and get defensive and say, well, they're, they're doing things worse than me and they're coming to tell me that. We need to have a humble spirit when it comes to things like that. If you're going to grow, you're going to move beyond where you are now, we need to have, be able to be rebuked and be reproved and be corrected. And a lot of times, you know, the, the best thing, author of this book says, be a lot better since instead of defending ourselves, if we would say, look, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> if you knew me, as well as God knows me and I know myself, you wouldn't, you know, uh, it's way worse than you think. Thank you for coming to me and telling me that. Would you pray with me? Would you talk? You know what I'm saying? You don't know the half of it. And most, thank the Lord, most of us in here don't know the half of it about each other's lives. But the fact is that we need to not be sensitive 
It's not thin-skinned. It's just a uh, fleshly pride that doesn't want to be wounded. That just shows me there's a lot of me, too much of me still living that needs to die. Even if this person did it in the wrong spirit, you know, even if they're wrong in their reproof, I don't have to heed the reproof because it was wrong, but I could still be humble in the way I receive it. And, and that's very important. But uh, this was a really good one, I thought, uh, in our flesh. This is, this is habits of the flesh that still remain or can still remain in the life of a believer. We think sometimes if my circumstances were only different. I put two checks by this in the book. If my circumstances were different, then I would really walk in victory. I would really be a stronger Christian. And think about how we, we might not say that to somebody. Maybe we would. But in our own minds, we keep it there as our excuse. We keep it there as our crutch. If, if I had more money, if I could sing like Dee could sing, okay? If I could teach the word like Alberta or Eric or Buck or someone, if I could, if I was bigger and stronger, if I was this, if my family was all Christians, if I had a better job, you understand? We could just keep on, if my, my health wasn't the way it is, you know, if I wasn't struggling with health issues, um, we could just, just keep going and going and going. That's my reason for not walking in victory over this sin. That's my reason for not being stronger in the Lord. If my circumstances were different. Now I want to read this from Amy Carmichael and I agree with it totally. She says, circumstances only reveal what is inside. So think about it. What is a circumstance? A circumstance is something outward. What's happening in our country? What's happening with our finances? Uh, the uh, health. All of a sudden, you wake up and you you got some ailment that you didn't have twenty you know the the day before, and those are circumstances. But circumstance only reveals what's inside of my heart in my life. It doesn't make or break it or create it. It shows what's already there. Okay? Just like a, fi- a refiner's fire, refining metals. It doesn't create the gold or the silver, the lead, or the impurities. It reveals what's there. And it separates them. The refining fire. Okay? It doesn't make the gold or create the gold. You had to put gold in there if you're going to have gold come out of that fire. But it reveals what it is. And so she goes on to say this. This is actually her quote. The eternal substance of a thing never lies in the thing itself, but in the quality of our reaction toward it. If in hard times, that's our circumstances. If in hard times we are kept from resentment, we are able to hold our peace, we're filled with the inward sweetness, she puts it, that is what matters. The event that distressed us will pass from memory as a wind passes and is gone. But what we were while the wind was blowing up upon us has eternal consequences. Isn't that good? That the thing that distressed us will pass away. What, what's happening in America will pass away. At some point, right? We know it will. 
what's happening in your health, in your sick body, what's happening in a relationship that's not as you would have it to be. Uh, whatever it may be, whatever that circumstance is will absolutely pass away. But what we were, kind of looking back at it, what we were while we were going through it, that actually has eternal consequences. That doesn't pass away. What we were. That's why the Bible, Peter talks about that our faith might come through as pure gold tried in the furnace of affliction. That when the Lord will, will be partakers of His glory, that's eternal. It's the circumstances, a physical ailment, a, a persecution in our country, whatever it may be, financial hardships, these things, what we are in the midst of those things will carry over. We want it to come through as pure goal because it has to do with our glory. It has to do with being a partaker of His glory. It has to do with rewards that we'll receive in heaven and so forth. I just thought that was a, a wonderful quote. And so uh, there has to be dying. This I want to tie it back to the cross. In the Old Testament, there was always, uh, you know, we did our series on the, on the, uh, on the altar. You know, in the, first, the first altar you would come to if you're coming to the, into the tabernacle or the temple was the brazen altar. The brazen altar was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of death. All had to be put on the altar. If you're going to go, and that represents Christ and, and salvation, the forgiveness of sins and being washed in the blood of Jesus. And then to go past that altar, if we're going to get into the inside the temple or the tabernacle or that place of fellowship and communion with the Lord, and I'm really simplifying it, but we had to go, everybody had to pass by that altar first, the brazen altar. There's an altar of incense in there first. And so that could represent the cross. That could represent dying, uh, not only Christ dying, but me dying to myself. And then going into communion with the Lord. There was the blood that was shed on those altars. And then there was the, for the priest, for example, then there was the anointing oil placed upon him. They placed the blood of the sacrifice, remember, on Aaron's and his sons on their right thumb and their right big toe. And I forgot where else, maybe their ear. And, uh, and then they poured the oil. Oil represents the Holy Spirit and the anointing. Okay? There has to be a death first. The blood rep came first. That brazen altar came first before the altar of incense. So what am I saying? I'm saying that we have to we have to be crucified with Christ and there has to be that dying to ourselves in order for there to be the fullness of the Spirit and all that the Lord wants to do in the anointing upon our lives. Amen? And so there was a, a preacher who struggled so much with his tongue with, with gossip that as a pastor, that's not a good thing for a pastor, uh, that he actually... He, fought to control it. He took a red hot poker and seared his tongue. It didn't help, by the way, because it's a matter of the heart. He came to learn it, but it's deeper than the tongue. It's a matter of the heart. I'm sure the tongue healed up eventually. But there has to be death and then, then the life. The death always comes first. The blood, the cross, that brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, and then 
the anointing and the fellowship and the and the, the fullness of the spirit, the fullness of all that there is in Christ. There was another pastor that this preacher knew who wrote this book. He was a, actually an evangelist and he was a fiery evangelist used greatly by the Lord. But there was a matter that rose with his wife. His wife, we doesn't tell what the matter was, but something in the church where she was wrong. She was dead wrong. And it manifestly wrong and proved to be wrong and whatever, whatever the, the thing was. And the preacher sided with his wife. And it made for peace in the home, but he, the, the Lord took away the anointing from his life. You say, well, shouldn't you stand with your wife? You stand with what's right. You can stand with your wife and still not condone what she's doing or what your husband's doing. You understand the point? You can, you can take the biblical side and still be faithful and true to your spouse or your friend or your child and, and do what's right. You can't take sides with what's wrong. She may, you must have sinned in some way or caused a division in the church or whatever. She did it. She was wrong and it was proven to be wrong. And instead of saying, honey, you were wrong on this. I still love you. You're my wife. Let's go to God. Let's get this straight. He just took sides with her on the wrong side. And that's he had peace, I guess I'm putting quotes around it, peace in the home. But at what cost? The anointing was taken. You know what that was? That was an area of his flesh that hadn't died yet. His flesh. Obviously, she had something going on as well. But for him to take sides with her in, a, in something that's wrong against the Lord, against his people, whatever it may be, uh, there's a cost to that. And I got a couple more things and we're going to we're going to not be too much longer. But this and I love the way this author puts this, that this generation is talking in the church has been graced. He's put quotes around it. Grace to spiritual softness and death. We don't fear as our forefathers did. I agree with that. Speaking about the church in a whole, this is not every individual Christian. This generation of Christians has been so uh, saturated with this thought of grace. And we need to, we thank God for the grace of God, okay? I don't mean that. But at, to, the, to the exclusion of other doctrines or traits or teachings or characteristics from the Bible. And there, have you ever noticed that if, if, I'm in, if you're committed some kind of sin and in a pattern of some kind of sin, you might turn, tend to overlook people they are doing the same thing and kind of hang out with them. In other words, if, if I lie a lot and get caught, somebody else is lying a lot over here and I don't have any real problem with that. Instead of going to him like a mature b believer, the reason is because I'm comfortable with somebody who's like me, but not in a good sense, okay? Evil communication corrupts good manners and so forth. And we, the flesh, the, the point of this being the flesh tends to gravitate or congregate with the flesh. If I'm rolling my eyes when the preacher preaches it's something and leaving church and going to watch some secular R-rated movie, I'm going to tend to gravitate to people that are doing the same thing. 
Right? I pray none of us are doing that. Not in this church. I pray we're not for Jesus' sake. But the point is, that is, that is the, the truth. Here's another quote from Amy Carmichael. She says that syrupy affection, that's what she calls it, never yet led to spiritual integrity. Syrupy affection. Are we to be affectionate or are we to love? We love unconditionally, love our brothers, love our enemies, love our neighbors as ourselves, love with the love of Christ, prefer others, esteem others better than ourselves. Yes, yes to all of the above. But syrupy affection, where you just kind of, Every, you're permissive and just kind of let things go in another person's life. It's never going to lead to spiritual maturity or integrity in their life. It's not the way that God deals with people. Think about Jesus Christ. What did he say to Peter, who he loved? Okay? On more than one, one occasion we know for sure where he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. That's a pretty strong rebuke. It wasn't syrupy affection, but it was what the Lord himself saw was needed that Peter needed to hear. He needed a rebuke. He needed a rebuke. It didn't kill him. It wasn't the end of his Christianity. It helped strengthen him. Okay? I think about Paul rebuking Peter publicly to the face. In, in Galatia, and it's talked about in the church there. He withstood him to the face and rebuked him. Syrupy affection wouldn't do in a, in a situation like that. You know, just like every, we're all a bunch of sinners, it's okay. Uh, we do need to be kind. We need to be Christ-like. We need to be prayed up. If you're going to be the one to speak to another believer's life about a sin in their life, Okay, absolutely. And we better treat them the way we would want to be treated in return. But I'm going to read read this. Amy Carmichael talking about that. It never led to spiritual integrity. And though it looks, this syrupy affection, looks so like the charity or love, which is greater than faith and hope, and it is admired of many, she says it is not admirable. It is sin. And so... It, we have to, the flesh is going to click up with the flesh. But you that are spiritual, we're to go to such a one and restore him in the spirit of meekness. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. We see a brother overtaken in a fault. They're already a Christian. They're already saved. Some sin has overtaken them. It's marred their testimony. It's marred their life. It's evident. It's obvious. It comes to our attention. They don't need syrupy affection. They need love. But they need us to speak the truth and love to them. And we do it considering ourselves as well. And so that's, that's another part of death. Death to ourselves. Okay? Death to ourselves. And the last thing we're going to talk about here tonight, just briefly. And one of the most manifest forms of the flesh is family flesh. The way the author puts it here, family flesh. And he brings in the syrupy affection here again. And it's on the part of parents to their children. The best of parents, okay? But it can betray us. It's, it's flesh. And it betrays us because we, the, the, as much as we love our children, 
We don't want to lead our children perhaps by the way of the cross. We want to lead them to Christ. We don't want them to go to hell. But we don't want to lead them the way of the cross. Which is death to self. Which is sometimes adversities. Which is not the easy road. Sometimes it's the rough road. It's the hard road. And we love our little darlings. And I'm including myself in this. And we want to spare them from every heartache. Every little difficulty. Anybody that frowns at them wrong. Any coach that doesn't start them and puts them on the bench. We want to frown at that. We want to spare them of every kind of pain. And everything that we think is unfair in this world. And it's not doing our children the biggest favor. Yes, we love them. Yes, we don't want them to hurt. I understand that. But we need to be mature. We need to say, this, this is what the Lord has for us. You know, stand up for Jesus at school. You lost all your friends. And so we back off and say, well, we, we lead them another way. You understand what I'm saying? We lead them another way instead of the way of the cross. When God is saying, no, stand up publicly for me and take what comes and I'll be with you. And you'll have a fellowship there. A lot of times the parents haven't gone the way of the cross. And so they sure don't want to lead their children that way. I'm closing with this thought. The very thing we want to hold on to, in this case if it's our children, the very things we th- that are in our flesh that we seek to save are the, in, are the things if we don't take them and sanctify them through the blood of Jesus and sanctify them by the Holy Spirit and sanctify them by the way of the cross, that's the very things we're going to lose. We try to hang on to them, preserve them, put them in a bubble, keep them just for ourselves, do it our way, instead of turning it over to the Lord and let Him take it, take it His way, and we end up, end up losing those things that we wanted to hang on to in the first place. And I know we've kind of been all over the place tonight, but those things like the, the family ties, the, the murmuring Christian, the complaining Christian, the thin-skinned Christian, these are just examples of the flesh. Those are just examples of things that need to go to the cross. You need to give your children to God and let the Lord make you the parents that He's called us all to be. I need to give my children to God. We need to trust the Lord when it comes to that and not be afraid to let them go the way of the cross. Because remember, the cross brings the death to self, but it makes room for the resurrection life of Jesus. It makes room for everything else that's good, everything that God has for us. Amen? And so uh, I'm just going to close with that. D, you can come. Y'all, the altars are open tonight. I just encourage you to uh, examine your heart. We, we sang that tonight, I will open up my heart. Search me in the deepest part. Can we allow the Lord to do that for just a few minutes?